As the world stands up in protest of police brutality in the wake of the killing of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis cops, talk grows louder of the need for drastic reforms. Among the solutions being discussed are changes to drug policy, an end to street checks or carding, and pulling money from the police budget to put it into better mental health and social supports. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. I talk with National Post contributor Josephine Mathias about why policing needs to change and why the conversation is starting to focus on defunding the cops. And later on, I'm joined by columnist Jesse Klein on why police reform should be welcome by conservatives. Don't forget you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your favorite shows. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Josephine, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, there have been a lot of signs that we could start to see some potential for real reform in policing. And and it appears that there's an appetite for change that we haven't seen after other tragic incidents like George Floyd's killing. What do you think is the biggest indication that we're heading in that direction? Oh, well, I mean, the amount of people that have come out in support of the Black Lives Matter movement and the thousands of people that are out protesting. I also think social media played a big part of this. Mm -hmm. Social media networks like Twitter and even TikTok, for example, there are a lot of young people that are more involved and active in their local communities and active in politics. And yeah, I think it's getting to a point where people are sick and tired of all the injustices and may also have a little to do with the fact that we've all been stuck at home for a few months. But yeah, yeah, I think at at this point, a lot of people are ready for change and they're out there demanding it, which is really, really cool to see. Mm-hmm. The fairly swift firing and then the subsequent arrest of the officers involved feels like a positive sign. But, you know, I, I know that that's just one small part in addressing some of these issues, right? Like, what do you see as some of the overarching problems with policing? Yeah, getting him arrested and fined and all that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's still so much more that needs to be done. And a lot of these has to do with the socioeconomic issues that are affecting these low-income communities. The reason why the police is going into these communities, the reason why there's higher interactions, there are things that we could actually fix to reduce the police interaction between these communities. One of them being an end to the war on drugs, for example. I mean, even though violent crime has gone down significantly, there's still more arrests every year for non-violent drug crimes. There are a lot of these arrests or these police interactions that could be avoided if these policies were put in place, if the war on drugs ended. So there are several different ways that we could actually try to improve the relationship that the police have with these communities. In Canada, we've seen some change to drug policy in that marijuana was legalized. But my understanding of some of the statistics is that we're still penalizing people from racialized communities, the black community and the indigenous community on charges related to marijuana. You get a sense that we're, there are communities that even despite, as you say, a, a drop in violent crime, that we are focusing too many police resources on. We're over-policing certain communities. Yeah, of course. And um, these low-income communities tend to have higher crimes, and that's usually used as an excuse for there to be over-policed, for more police to be in these neighborhoods, in these areas. But, you know, if you have more police surveying an area, then of course the crime rates are going to go up. Of course the crime rate's going to go higher. There's a statistic that says black and white people use marijuana at the same rate, but then black people get arrested more for it. Mm -hmm. And this has to do with the over-police, and it has to do with, you know, increased police presence in these areas. And I understand the concern of, you know, you do need need the police to be there if there is higher crimes. But there are all these other issues that we could fix that actually reduce the crime than using violence to try to deal with violence in these communities. It's ridiculous. 
I know in the in the states in certain areas it's called stop and frisk in Canada in Toronto I believe it's called carding Edmonton police they use the term street checks yes where does that have to be dealt with as a policy in policing is that something the police should stop doing is that something the police should be more transparent about what they're doing how does the police address the issue of carding when it comes to dealing with the black community or the indigenous community Well, I do think it's something that needs to be stopped for sure. And I feel like when you have more police presence, when police are engaging with young people more and making them feel like they're criminals, making them feel like they have a reason to be stopped, this just creates worse relationships with the police and these communities, allows people to feel as if they're being targeted. They feel as if they are criminals, even if they're not really doing anything. And I think there's something called broken windows policing. Mm -hmm. This has to do with the idea that catching small quality of life violations, like selling individual cigarettes or CDs will, you know, keep a neighborhood safe from more serious crimes. And there is no proof that that actually works. So a lot of the damage that's being caused in these communities, there's no actual data that backs up that this actually works to prevent more violent crimes. So yeah, I do think that stop and fricks, carding, all of those things do need to stop. And instead of stop and fricks and carding, the police should be going into these communities and trying to form relationships and bonds with the communities and talking to them, asking them what they need, what kind of help they need, rather than going in there with the sole purpose of, I need to arrest someone, I need to find someone that might be committing a crime. If you keep assuming someone's committing a crime, feel like they eventually just do it because if you keep thinking I'm a criminal, I might as well be one. So yeah, there's a lot of work to be done to fix those relationships and carding and stop and fricks. That's something that just, uh, it's not, it's not worth it. (laughs) It does more damage. So one of the things you talk about in your piece on the issue of policing is that education reform could make a difference. What does education have to do with crime in certain areas and how police interact with people? Well, I believe that education has a big role to play with people that do end up committing crimes uh, later in life. If you don't have the right skills and the right education that could actually allow you to live a better life, then, I mean, there's no other option but to look for other ways to make money, which usually are illegal ways, like, you know, selling CDs, selling cigarettes, all these different things. Mm -hmm. And it's unfair that your socioeconomic status will determine the type of education that you receive. That's just not equal opportunity. That shouldn't be the way it works. And now that these communities, which have the worst schools because they're poor, have more police interaction, it just causes a cycle where it makes it so difficult for people to get out of the life of crime and poverty and all of those things because they don't really have the skills required to actually get themselves out of there. And by over-policing and allowing them to face more interactions with the police, then give them a criminal record. That's something that will also stop them from getting a better life. So it really starts with the education, for sure. It allows people to really get out of the mess that they're in right now. Now, one of the things that we've heard a lot about in the last two weeks has been the idea of defunding the police or divesting funding in police. I believe the mayor of Minneapolis said they're going to start the process of, quote, dismantling the police. What does police reform need to look like? And what do you feel about the term defunding or divesting in policing? What's interesting is that the majority of people that are actually talking about abolishing the police or defunding the police don't actually mean we should get rid of the police altogether. So when I first heard the term abolish the police and like, um, we, we need the police, we actually need them to help us and to, you know, protect us. But then when you realize that a big part of police work today has nothing to do with the training that they're actually going through, then a lot of the resources can be given to people that can actually help these communities. Like we don't need the police dealing with homelessness. We don't need the police dealing with sex 
sex workers. These are things that social workers and there are people that actually have training that could actually deal with these issues that doesn't require force or punishment, but instead it could focus on rehabilitation and all these other things. So when people are saying defund the police or abolish the police, the majority of them really just mean that. And I agree with it. I do think that the police force and the power that they have is way too big and violent crime has gone down significantly. So we don't really need a lot of what they're offering right now. So instead of getting rid of it completely, be easier for us to divert the resources to the people that could actually help these communities and actually make a change in these communities. So even if we talk about the police still having a role to play and and defunding the police, not actually meaning 100% defunding the police, but putting money into other areas. One of the other issues that I imagine needs to get dealt with is the training police receive. We don't necessarily need to see police officers going in to deal with someone who's accused of of passing off a fake $20 bill as George Floyd was, and then using strong arm arrest tactics and putting a knee to somebody's neck. How much does training need to be a part of the idea of police reform in this country and, and in North America? I would say a big part. When there's more training to be a hairdresser than it is to be a police officer, then I think there is a problem, especially when these are violent workers. They're supposed to use violence in their work. So I would expect them to at least have a little bit more training in how to de-escalate and actually deal with these high stress situations. Like, don't get me wrong, being a police officer and police work is incredibly hard. And there are areas and times where they do require to use force. But if they have the training that would allow them to know when to use it, when it goes too far, then this could go a long way in helping them. And I think there is an example, a city, Camden, New Jersey, dismantled their entire police force and started all over again. Mm. Even though they increased the amount of officers there, they changed the ways that the police interacts with the community, which helped them in a great way. So one of the coolest things is that new officers have to go door to door to introduce themselves to the community that they're policing and ask them, what would you like me to do for you? What things do you guys need that we can help you with? They host barbecues. They host outdoor activities. These are the types of things that will allow us to view the police as not enemies or not people that we should be terrified of, but people that are there to protect us and makes us feel like we're okay and we're doing well. And that takes training. It takes a lot of training. Mm -hmm. So I really do think training would go a long way in helping rectify the relationship. We've talked about some pretty big sweeping issues and things that don't get changed overnight. It's one thing to fire a police officer who is ultimately charged with murder in the death of a man that he was trying to arrest, firing and charging of other officers. That can be done fairly quickly, but defunding the police, changing and developing new training tactics, reforming the education system, changing drug policy. These are things that don't happen overnight. How do we keep focus on this issue or how does the movement keep people from becoming demoralized when these things take a lot of time? Well, that's sort of the question I guess we're all trying to answer and figure out. Like, Is this going to die down? Is this going to be the height of it all? And then after the upcoming election, everything goes back down. But I feel like at this time, it's it's a little different. A lot of the systemic issues that have been going on when it comes to healthcare, the education system, the war on drugs, it's all catching up to people now. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are realizing how much damage is actually happening in their lives. You have to pay hundreds of dollars for insulin. You start to realize, okay, maybe this isn't fair if it only costs about, what, two 
$2 to make. So I think this time a lot more people are aware and awake and, you know, realizing what's going on. And I really don't think that it's going to end until these big changes start happening and these policies, uh, proposals starts occurring. I believe the Democrats just put out a new proposal uh, the other day. So hopefully it will keep going and the momentum keeps going. But We've learned years and years that, you know, young people don't really show up to vote, even though that's the biggest way that they could actually start creating change or causing change. They have to vote in their local elections, but the turnout for these are, it's ridiculously low. Mm -hmm. But I'm hoping that, you know, because of the way it's set up, people have been stuck at home. They're seeing all these issues um, happening in front of their faces. Hopefully that would allow them to actually show up to the polls and try to implement these policies that we're talking about. Well, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on how this unfolds both in the United States and here in Canada. Josephine, thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, Jesse Klein on the conservative reasoning for defunding police. So, Jesse, one thing you can count on in this country is that when it comes to policing and being, quote unquote, tough on crime, conservatives are proud to be on the police side of the thin blue line. Why are issues related to policing and punishing criminals so intrinsically linked to conservative politicians? Well, I think uh, conservatives have always been tough on crime and big proponents of law and order. Um, At the same time, they're also proponents of limited government and small government. So there's a bit of disconnect there when it comes to policing, especially because we have seen, especially in the United States, especially over the past few decades, the number of police swell, the militarization of police expand and police budgets expand enormously. And as you said, conservatives have largely been behind it while saying that we should take money out of other government services and programs. Is it just a case of they want to maintain some kind of social order, like conservatives, while they want small governments, especially in the United States, there's the whole Second Amendment movement and they don't want the government taking away their weapons and they want lower taxes, but at the same time, they want to maintain some kind of existing social order? Yes, I think that's largely it. And I think you have to remember, too, that the term conservative is a big tent, right? You have your social conservatives, your libertarians, and those two groups are often at loggerheads on a number of issues. And I think like the libertarian side is often, we do need to defund police and we do need to lower police budgets as part of broader program to reduce the size of government. Mm -hmm. Whereas social conservatives in a lot of ways are more in favor of government controls when it comes to social issues. Now, when it comes to the case of George Floyd specifically and his death at the hands of Minneapolis police, we saw in the aftermath of his death, a lot of condemnation of the killing by conservative politicians and conservative pundits, especially in the United States. Does this, in a sense, potentially serve as a turning point? You could see more conservatives come out in favor of some sweeping police reform or a change in policing tactics or even a look at policing budgets. Or do you get the sense that many, even though they've spoken out against it, don't want to see things change? I think initially, right after that incident, we saw it was a major change from when when things like this have happened in the past. Because as you said, there were a lot of conservatives that came out and said point blank what happened to George Floyd was wrong and that there are issues with racism in America that need to address. Since then, we've seen that kind of change and everybody has gone back into their two Democrat and Republican camps, left and right camps. 
now in the past week or so, we've seen more and more conservatives that just want to talk about the violence on the street and don't want to discuss the issue of racism and policing and things like that. So I don't hold out too much hope that we'll see a broad consensus on these issues in the United States, even though I think that's what's really necessary. In your column recently, the conservative case for demilitarizing the police and improving racial equality, what do you mean when you talk about the notion of demilitarizing the police? How have police been militarized over the years? Is it in the size? Is it in the equipment? Is it in tactics? What are you talking about there? In all of the above, we have seen an enormous expansion of police forces in the United States, especially since Nixon, Reagan, even Bill Clinton put a lot of money into policing and expanding police forces. They've also been militarized with actual military hardware. Surplus military hardware in the United States is often sent to police forces. We've seen the emergence of SWAT teams. We've seen tactics that are downright violent being used more and more often. So we really have this situation, especially south of the border, where it's often looks more like a police state and the police look more like military than they do civilian police officers. So would it be a case of just saying, okay, we don't need to buy new equipment. We should take away certain equipment that police have. We need to look at how they're trained or how they appear. Like what, what would be the steps made to demilitarize? There's a broad range of issues that go into this. And I think Looking at at racism is a big one. Yes, looking at the hardware that they have, looking at how often SWAT teams are used. There's many issues at play here. So I don't think there's one thing that we can say, yeah, you know, if if you get rid of this type of gun, then we won't see problematic incidents involving police. They certainly, I don't think, need the military hardware. There's an issue in the United States with no knock raids where they can get a warrant and not even have to knock on the door. They just bust it down. And we've seen time and time again that they often end up in houses of people who end up being innocent or they often end up hurting people who they shouldn't and terrorizing families. So, you know, again, I think there's a whole host of issues and there isn't one thing we can directly put our finger on and say, you know, making this one policy change will make things better. Yeah. In your column, you talk about the idea that we have SWAT teams who I assume are on these no-knock warrants because they want to come in with the element of surprise and force showing up in impoverished neighborhoods like they were trying to root out Osama bin Laden, which isn't typically what people would want as their ideal police service, right? No, and a big thing with police is that you really need to have trust between the citizens that they're supposed to be protecting and the police forces. And a lot of the time that has really been degraded. And you don't build that trust by putting people in bulletproof vests with AK-47s and masks on on the streets. You do that by putting police officers that, that can actually talk to the people that they're serving and interact with them and form relationships. And that's that's just not what we've been seeing over the last few decades. Yeah. And one of the things that we've heard mentioned several times over the last couple of weeks is the idea of defunding the police or divesting in the police taking that money, putting it into social programs, better mental health, we don't need the police dealing with homeless calls, things of that nature. For conservatives who may be skeptical of the idea of reining in the police budgets or worried that by doing so you'd create anarchy, what would you say is like the biggest conservative argument in favor of this notion? Well, I think that if if conservatives are really interested in having smaller government and less government spending, then they really need to look at all the places that the government spends money. 
the police are the instrument by which the state enforces its powers. Mm-hmm. And we have too many laws on the books. A lot of them end up being arbitrary. So you end up having these police forces. They have all these laws that they don't generally use or, and don't generally enforce. But if they happen not to like somebody, that, then they'll go after them with these laws. When we talk about the rule of law, that's not what people think of. We're supposed to, we're supposed to be in a country where everybody knows what the rules are. Those rules seem fair to everybody because they elected the people who put those rules in place. And that's unfortunately not what we have. So I don't think there's any reason why you can say we need to spend less money on government and we need to have a smaller government and at the same time go ahead and say, well, except when it comes to, say, police and the military. That's not even taking into account the other half of the justice system where you have people who are arrested for minor crimes and go through the court system and possibly wind up incarcerated when they may have addictions issues that was driving their crime or mental health issues and the cost to the overall justice system on that end of things. So there's the potential for even a greater conservative argument against the notion of defunding the police on that side of things, right? Yeah, there's a huge expense when people go into the criminal justice system when they have to appear before courts. And there's a huge expense to keeping them locked up in prisons as well. I don't think that there's much of a question that there's a lot of things that we don't do well. We don't deal with mental health issues well. And maybe there are other ways to do it rather than sending in police officers armed with guns. So I don't think there's anything wrong from a conservative's perspective to say, Let's look and see if there's other policies we can put in place, other ways we can deal with these issues. Yeah, that's definitely an important conversation, especially now. Jesse, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 103 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guests, Josephine Mathias and Jesse Klein. More from both of them at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.